Can we run the same models, but with better data? Can we get to a 1.5 degree world? And that's the ultimate nuclear argument for how Bitcoin mining actually makes sense. Where does it make sense to engage with policymakers to actually build on their language, with their models, rerunning it, but with Bitcoin mining and Bitcoin in the various dimensions as the X factor in the equation. Hello there from Austin in the great state of Texas. I'm over here, I'm making some shows, gonna be heading out to Miami soon. Hope you're all well. Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I'm using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I'm interviewing Harold Rauter, an environmentalist, and he is also a Bitcoiner. Now, I've been lucky to interview some of the most talented people with expertise in climate change and energy systems, but I've also managed to interview a wide range of people who have got an interest in Bitcoin or mining or how energy works. As you know, I've had Alex Epstein on the show, who a lot of Bitcoiners are interested in what he says. I don't agree with him 100%, but he's definitely made me reconsider what a rapid reduction in fossil fuels would mean. And with the energy and crisis in Europe, we're seeing the impact of that. I've also got an interview with Nate Harmon, who I met out in Hawaii, which is going to be coming out on Thursday, where he really challenges some of the ideas that people like Saifedean are disseminating with regards to climate change. So it's an important topic. It's important to talk to everyone and get a full range of... Uh, opinions on this because it is a complicated picture. But I love talking to people who can bring new insights and can connect some of the dots. Now, Harold has made a connection between the deficiency of UN climate change assumptions. This was seen with the flaws in the Paris Climate Accord, but he's also identified how Bitcoin can help mitigate some of the issues. Now, I need to speak to more people, and I will be speaking to more people. I know this is a controversial subject, and a lot of people have quite strong opinions, but it is important to talk to both the scientists, but also the people on the ground who understands how Bitcoin works and how mining works and how this can all integrate. So I'm going to continue speaking to a range of people on this. I hope you enjoy it. I hope you get a lot out of it. If you've got any questions about this or feedback or you think I should be talking to somebody else, you can drop me an email and it's hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Welcome to the show, Harold. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for coming on. We're very excited to make this show. My brother is a huge fan of yours. Oh, thank you. He's been fanboying. I know you guys have been talking. He's been fanboying a lot. Um, he he wanted to come down. Uh, I know. I know. He was very sorry he couldn't. Well, he may come to the game tomorrow. But he had a very dodgy excuse. What was his excuse? He said, the room will get too hot if he's in there. We've got too many people in here. No, it's actually, it's, it's actually a fair point. <laughs> <laughs> this room can get like we're learning about this this room because yeah. the weather's been so hot yeah just because of natural climate cycles mm -hmm. we've had a, a naturally oh, yeah, yeah. very hot Absolutely. time recently yeah, and yeah. totally predictable totally predictable and we've had sometimes too many people in this room and it's got super hot so uh so that is one of the reasons but we're going to try and get him down to the bedford game tomorrow which we're bringing you to and uh yeah. so you maybe get to see him there so Climate is something we've been touching on this show. What started as a Bitcoin show now yes. covers yes. other subjects naturally as Bitcoin permeates other parts of the world. Uh, energy is one of those topics. And uh, we've had a range of people on the show. I've had Alex Epstein. I've had Andrew Desler, who I'm pretty sure you'll be aware of. I even interviewed uh, on my other podcast um, quite, quite a while back, Catherine Hayhoe, who mm -hmm. I also think is fantastic. And there are a wide range of opinions with regards to how real climate change is, how serious it is, and what we can do about it. Mm. Uh, and making a show such as the one I did with Desla will have um, a certain group of people who completely disagree with him, 
and I'll make a show with Alex Epstein and another group will completely disagree with him. My interest is purely in what is real, what is happening, and what can be done about it. And so I'm always going to talk to as many people as possible. And uh, you as somebody who understands climate, but also understands Bitcoin, is a super interesting person to get on the show. Thank so you. welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for coming on. Uh, Harold, for people who don't know you, it's going to be very useful for you mm -hmm. to give a, a, a background to who you are, mm -hmm. the work you do, and mm -hmm. that will help us establish the framework. Mm -hmm. Cool. Well, my name is Harold. I'm Austrian by origin. I've been living in Switzerland for most of my professional career. Um, I'm a biochemist slash geneticist by training, um, but I've never worked really in the academic field. Um, did most of my professional career uh, in consulting, uh, engineering consulting, strategy consulting. Was running my own company in that field for a couple of years in Germany. Um, and then 2016 returned to Switzerland to um, essentially start for um, the climate branch of the European Union, which is a body that was completely unknown to me um, by that time. But essentially it's a a hundred million dollar um, private investor that seeks to invest and de-risk uh, initiatives that bring Europe onto a path of a decarbonized economy. Um, all what happened with regards to climate laws, um, the Green Deal came later on. Um, so I was fortunate enough to learn a lot about the climate, learn a lot about the actors and different actorship theories that, that, that um, are going on in the space. Um, I was running essentially in, in a portfolio of, of, of equity investments and grant investments for Austria, Germany and Switzerland. And through this work, actually got in touch with a couple of, um, oh, it was 2017, um, blockchain-based idea, blockchain slash climate. Um, it was all within the ICO hype, um, so essentially nothing useful ever came out of this, but this was my first contact to the, to the, to the crypto space. Um, came for numbers go up, stayed for the revolution, um, learned the bits and bolts on how European regulation works, how Bitcoin could fit into this, and sort of started to peel the onion for myself um, and started to, 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 to walk this, 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 or try to find the balance between institutional settings and legacy institutions and what the Bitcoin revolution can bring to the space. And so I'm convinced and I appreciate that you picked this up a lot because I got encouraged to get in touch with you because of the interviews you did uh, with Margaret and with Troy and others um, to actually consider that this is something real and that it should be spread more widely. Uh, and so I'm super happy to, uh, super happy to be here. So with regards to cl climate change yes. and the issues regarding that, it, it would be it would be much more useful if we had a uh, wide and broad consensus mm -hmm. on uh, what what the issues are, mm -hmm. what the potential damage is, mm -hmm. and therefore to plan mm -hmm. mitigation. Mm -hmm. um, I believe myself, people who know this, listen to this, I believe that the climate change is an issue. I mm -hmm. believe it is caused by humans. Mm -hmm. And I believe there are consequences down the line. Mm -hmm. I've also come to the point where I understand that curtailing access to energy mm -hmm. also has very severe consequences. Mm -hmm. uh, and despite people, some people have been very critical of Alex Epstein, mm -hmm. um, he did make me consider that. Mm -hmm. And despite people being very critical of people like 
uh, Desla and mm-hmm. Catherine Ayo, they also made me very aware of the issues mm-hmm. with regards to climate change. Mm-hmm. But if we could get to some point of consensus, I think that would be very useful. But I actually feel like we're getting further away from consensus and a bigger division is starting to to arise here with issues with regards to climate change. And there is now a growing group of people on the opposite side of the, the climate scientists. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, th- I think that's for for a r- wide range of reasons. I think there are s- lobbyists who are mm-hmm. successful, mm-hmm. as we had with the tobacco industry, and as we have with uh, uh, various other industries in uh, having messages that permeate and successfully change people's minds. I think that happens. Mm-hmm. But secondly, there's also been some fails on the side of those who are uh, trying to promote the idea that climate change is real. I, th- I think there's been some models and claims quite frankly haven't happened um but for you right now your understanding of where we are with regards to climate change mm-hmm. how would you explain the current where we are like the current situation but mm-hmm. as scientifically as possible well i'm not sure what i can put it into as, as scientific as possible but i of course um in in preparation for this podcast i went back to to essentially the roots and what you find out in this journey into the past and i'm really convinced that certain things you can only understand through a historical lens um we essentially have a critical moment in 1982 where ironically the biggest um and and uh, and best prepared climate scientists came from ExxonMobil. Yes. Yeah. And so 1982, there is this famous 40-page report, which is an internal memo, which got released later on, which essentially puts down on paper very clearly to state climate change is real. We as human cause it because essentially it it's an implicit statement because it says if we burn more fossil fuel, we will cause uh, an accelerated uh, change of the climate, who is the species that is using <laughs> fossil fuels to, to drive its civilization? It's us as humans. So that was the implicit acknowledgement. They'd made the connection between an increase in carbon oh, yes. and in the atmosphere. Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, I'm, yes. I'm, I'm fully aware of this because I interviewed Nathaniel Rich, yes. who wrote a book about this. Yes. I always forget the name of it. The, the, remember what it is? The decade we could have yeah saved I, it's something like that it's an, uh, do you do you know this book by nathaniel no Rich? i don't yeah it's a very good book he actually he's written a, a few good books he's um, a journalist based out in the u.s losing earth losing earth so so yeah. he wrote a book that covered that specific yeah. period yeah. with ExxonMobil. and i think this is really critical to be understood because um if we go back into that time it was not a conversation of do we doubt whether it's real or not it's essentially building a strategic argument how do we deal with this fact and so i just imagine the exxon mobile management sitting down and saying how do we deal with this now and i imagine they're sitting down and saying okay if we look at the lay of the land in terms of strategic positioning port as five forces who are we who are our rivals what's the bargaining power of our suppliers there's almost none uh, of our customers there's almost none power of subst- um, uh, bargaining power of potential substitution that is a risk so now how do we deal with this because the implicit assumption was if we exceed a certain threshold of carbon in the atmosphere this will lead to policy changes which will be detrimental to our business so I would put it down here for our conversation that there was never any doubt that climate change is real and that we in fact have lost a decade or two decades discussing whether or not it's real. 
Okay. This is probably why the likes of Catherine. So if I, um, someone like Catherine Hayhoe, mm-hmm. if you put her, hey, would you be interested in debating Alex Epstein on climate yes. change? She will just decline it. Um, and her view is that I'm not here to waste my time. I'm not going to debate whether climate change is real or mm-hmm. not. Um, it's happening. I'm only uh, interested in working on yes. uh policy or actions that can change Understood. it desla did do the debate with alex epstein and and alex's alex's approach is slightly different he's not denying climate change mm-hmm. he's his view is that no i agree it's real but we can we can mitigate this and by preventing people having access to fossil fuels we will do more damage than good i'm not i'm not defending either argument yeah but someone like Catherine's just hands down will not debate people because of this no i think it would be a very interesting conversation because this is exactly what we actually need to do now there is no point in having a conversation of what happened in the past if we want to go forward if we want to find a way of how we can go forward and i think the climate community is not doing itself a favor by saying, you know, we should shut down fossil fuel by tomorrow, mm-hmm. um, because obviously that will lead to detrimental short term um, consequences, as we're seeing in Europe right now. So there is there is this is not a fruitful conversation to be had. What we need to do instead is like a normal any company would do. It would say, well, we have a business model, but now we, trans- we need to find a substitution strategy, how we can get into a new business model. How do you think Apple sat down in 2004 when it just saw, saw that MP3 players are getting smaller and smaller and smaller and they get integrated into your mobile device, which is called the telephone? They didn't choose to go into the telephone business because they were so keen on having a telephone, but they were keen on maintaining their share of MP3 players, which was a, a massive part of their business and their revenue to be continued in a new reality which is called the mobile age and i think the same conversation we need to have with regards to energy even if we look at the international energy agency and the different scenario planings none of these scenarios um predicts a world in 20 zero in 2100 below 30 percent um fossil fuel energy in the supply mix i think we can can go do better than that i think we need to do better than that if we are serious about 1.5 degree. So my tether, my North Star in all these cons- uh, conversations is essentially these, this, this emergent, emergent reality that 1.5 degree global warming compared to pre-industrial age is a key figure that we need to work towards and we need to be very creative on how we can make that work. But we cannot compromise on 1.5 degrees. Because because the damages um, and the consequences, if we only reach two degrees, are too detrimental for the the human civilization to 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 um, accept. Meaning, at two degree, for instance, you have uh, 2.5 billion people that will run out of water in sub-Saharan Africa, which which will lead to huge climate migrations. And this is not a dystopian argument. I mean, if you look into France right now, you see this process is accelerating and what it means if even uh, Western civilizations are running out of water. So, But to challenge you there, yeah. because it's right to challenge you, hmm. uh, there have been grand claims made in the past, lots of very grand claims. Uh, there was uh, specific claims with regards to the ozone layer mm-hmm. and acid rain. There was claims that we would all be underwater by a certain time. 
So into, what I want to know is if somebody is claiming that 2.5 billion people in sub-Saharan uh, Africa will not have access to water, how do we know this? Well, we don't, <laughs> we don't really know it. It's, of course, uh, part of a, of, a, of a scenario planning exercise. But I, I think the, the, the question to me is a different one. If we have the possibility to contain global warming to 1.5 degree, why would we not try to do it? Well, I think the best argument for that would be is, is the trade-off. What is the trade-off between 1.5 and 2? What do we have to do to get to 1.5? And what are the costs to humans mm -hmm. and civilization? And what is the impact of going to 2? Mm -hmm. To me, this is, this is the argument. By the way, I'm with you. No, I understand. I understand, but, 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 I understand all that. But the question remains the same, even if we work with a 2-degree uh, scenario. Mm -hmm. Currently, we're at 2.7 to 3.5. So if you want to discuss whether this is going to be detrimental or not, we can have that conversation, but then it's not me with whom no, you want to have yeah. that conversation. Um, so even if we talk about a two-degree two global warming threshold, the question remains the same. If we are able to do it, why wouldn't we do it? And the question yeah. that I'm interested in is asking myself, what is, what is the policy side doing at the moment? to make this work, whether the assumption this policy side is building its policies on, what are the climate models trying to predict and how robust are they on the surface, uh, sorry, uh, on, on the base when it comes, or how concrete are they at the base when it really comes to concrete climate action. So this is sort of the onion that I try to peel. Yeah, and I think part of the fear that comes from those who are either skeptical or against the conversations, whatever the range of views are, I think comes from a place of massive distrust at the moment for centralized entities, mm -hmm. institutions, oh, governments, yes. fear that this is used, uh, weaponized for tax policy, oh, yes. that their friends in government will, or close to government will benefit, that Nancy Pelosi will know exactly which companies that should be financed on the on the green side and will successfully invest in them. Mm -hmm. Like all the bullshit that we've seen during COVID, which, by the way, I personally fell for a whole bunch of this shit. I think that is what where the fear comes from, yes. is how do you establish policy which is overall net good for people and isn't just a tool or a weapon of yes. these failed centralized institutions and 100 percent agree with them i'm sitting here in a in a bitcoin podcast because yeah. i'm massively distrustful towards the institutions um i i think that there is we need to be a bit more surgical when it comes to understanding how these institutions operate um, some of the arguments are just too simple for me due to my experience or according to my experience these are not these are not bad people they are not ill-intended they do their best but based on a very compromised understanding of the world okay so um, I'm sitting here because I think a lot of these narratives also within the IPCC reports are problematic and I'm happy to dig into that because I think this is a quintessential point to be understood before we can have a conversation around how does Bitcoin fit in all of this. Okay, talk to me about that. Good. So I think the, the most... So Explain I, to people who IPCC are. So uh, the IPCC is the Inter Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change. It is essentially a 
a body that has been created in 1988 um, as a, you would call it a joint venture, mm -hmm. out of the World Meteorological Organization and the UNFCCC, which is the, the, the UN uh, entity which deals with the climate change issue. And this is the, the, the panel, which is the scientific body that um, uh, gathers all the information that is available on the climate and then publishes reports uh, on describing the state of play at a certain um, given point in time. And they do this through regular reports. And th these are the, 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 the important reports when it comes to, or these reports cater to governments, all governments around the world, to inform their policy making on climate related decisions. Are they a respected and trusted body? Well, on the whole, yes, yeah. okay. absolutely. And um, I know this is also a point of controversy. I recommend everybody who doubts academic publishing or scientific publishing to go and read those reports. In terms of scientific craftsmanship, that's best in class. Okay. And they are really well vetted. And so we are Bitcoiners. And if you don't trust it, then Verify. Fucking verify. Yeah. Because all is publicly available. The reports are available. The supplementary material is available. All the models are available. Um, um, all the assumptions within the models are available. Everything is open source. And I think that's a really good thing. But it's a massive body of, of, of work to dig deep into this. And I was fortunate enough to have this as a profession um, to, to learn how good they actually are. And I'm, I don't want to qualify on how good they are. I think there are very interesting aspects in them, but there are also flaws in them. And I would love to discuss what I think are the interesting um, ups and the, and the positives and negatives. We've done some research on this in the past as well, because one of the criticisms of, of uh, climate scientists is that the models... Is people use models to actually yeah. attack them but actually in our research danny uh, they're, they're, they're pretty accurate weren't they we've yep. you know there oh, have man. there have been failed models oh yeah certainly but but it's that's the exception not the norm actually the models have been all like fair like in yes. more recent ones even more accurate yes. Uh, Which makes sense, right? Yeah. The more data sets you get in, uh, the more you can incorporate, um, the better the models are. Yeah. Right. Okay. So from that point the you talked about, and I know you were discussing this in preparation with uh, Neil, you talked about some of the flaws within mm -hmm. the overall climate change conversations. I mean, I'm starting to recognize them, but mm -hmm. where would you say is we're having like a lot of difficulty? Like, all I want is to make progress. If somebody is sat across the table for me mm -hmm. who is a skeptic, mm -hmm. I want to know how do we get to a point where we're in agreement, where we both have a set of facts. We're like, okay, that is truth. That is yeah. fact. And we can agree yeah. and make progress. I'm not here to push a single agenda. Mm -hmm. If I'm wrong, I want to know if I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. And if they're wrong, I want to, I want to help them know mm -hmm. if they're wrong. Like, how do we get to that point? Because it, the, if this is science, it should be pretty obvious. It should be like, here, is the, here, is, here are the facts. This is where we're heading. These are the consequences. Okay. This is what we need to work with. And by the way, I think the most complicated part of all of this is actually, is that uh, climate change is a global issue, which has got uh, local and regional uh, interests. Mm -hmm. uh, I think there's certain companies who have a massive interest in, in helping people believe this isn't an issue because mm -hmm. their entire business model, mm -hmm. which is worth billions of profit every year, completely mm -hmm. crush. Mm -hmm. um, and and uh, just as a complete side point, I think people should look to Saudi Let's see what's happening there. That is a country whose entire business 
model is based on the extraction of hydrocarbons mm -hmm. but they are changing their That's business model at the moment and they are investing heavily in sports and they've bought into newcastle they started a golf tournament you know they are and, and they've just announced this new mega wall city like that is a country that recognizes that its business model oh, yeah. needs to change absolutely well a couple of things here um i wouldn't call it flaws okay because i think um what humans do naturally is we have a very complex reality which we try to abstract in a certain way to make our life just easier and i think on a policy level you do the same thing but you need to read the primary data in order to be able to identify where we might have taken the wrong turn so when we let's focus for a second on the on the on the special report which came out which is just called global warming of 1.5 degrees in 2019 it's a massive document it's 260 pages of course there are executive summaries and everything um, but what is really interesting is the fact that um, it 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 re it, re it represents a synthesis of all the different models that have been used in the past to uh, model climate change but also to describe mitigation pathways okay mm -hmm. so let's put that to the side for a second i think it's really important that we talk about those when it comes to bitcoin on a higher aggregation level it's super fascinating because it was the first time that this report asked the question well in what world are those mitigation pathways actually embedded in now that makes total sense because you, <laughs> um, if you look at the world which is highly cooperative a certain action can look very different to a world that or, or feasible than to a world where the world is highly competitive and so what they did is they incorporated the so-called shared socioeconomic pathways, which essentially is a description of the state of play when it comes to how does the world look like in terms of geopolitical um, um, condition. And it assumes fairly that there might be a world where the world is highly cooperative, it recognizes collectively that we need to do something about climate change and is willing to act in a cooperative manner towards that path. It's called the SSP1 pathway, the green road. Then on the other extreme, there is a world which it's almost a bit dystopian because it describes it. Well, I need to read this up. It's fine. Because it's just so accurate. So the, the it's called the- Harold has receipts. I have. Do you have something so we can pull it up there? No, I don't. Where does that come from? Is but, that from oh, the that's, internet? That's, that, yeah, of course. No. Well, well then, Danny, Danny's got, we, we have the internet here in Bedford. <laughs> All right. Well, it's pretty bad. Yeah, it's so, true. So look up the five shared socioeconomic pathways. Hi, Jerome. Where is Peter, by the way? We've retired Peter Schiff. Okay. Yeah, he's done. We've had enough Peter Schiff. We've moved on to Jerome Powell. I'm not feeling Jerome. You know? No. Oh, yeah. please put up Lagarde. That would be so yeah, much more appropriate. The car's interesting. I feel like, do you know, I feel like I want... In terms of, like, lossless level. But he's know? telling you which way inflation's going in the UK. <laughs> yeah, I just, I'm just, I'm just not feeling Jerome like I used to feel Peter Schiff. What? Uh, stop it. I, I feel like, um, you can you find it? Yeah, I can find it, but the internet's not loading anything. <laughs> so, so you we don't have, had the internet. We, don't have, we, don't have <laughs> we do. Just in, in the village I live in is pretty shit. Uh, no, but it's easy to explain. So essentially, this is a. It's called here we go the rivalry 
Is this it? Regional rivalry scenario. Leave all of that out. Blah, 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 blah. There needs to be some kind of a match. Here you go. This oh, here. Yeah, this is cool. Okay. Yeah. So. So it's called the Rocky Road. Yeah. Uh -huh. So it assumes a world where we have high population, low economic growth per capita, low human development, low technological process, resource intensive lifestyle, resource constrained energy and food demand per capita, uh, focus on regional food and energy security, re, uh, regionalization and lack of global cooperation. Yeah, that sounds pretty fucked. Does that sound somehow familiar? And then you have... Is uh, that the current state of play? No, wait. I think <laughs> this is where it gets super interesting. Okay. Um, and then we have the inequality scenario, which essentially assumes a lot of tensions between different uh, populations. So city versus rural, um, workers, working class with elites, and so on and so forth. Okay. And then there is a fossil fuel development, which is actually a really in interesting one, uh, which assumes we're not changing much. We just use a shitload of energy that we can produce out of fossil fuels to mitigate climate change. Sounds absurd, but of course you need energy to also do a lot of carbon capture and storage and so on and so forth. It, okay. They're all they're all essentially assumptions. Yeah. And then you have the SSP2 pathway, uh, the SSP2 pathway, which essentially is called the middle of the road. So it's a compromise. It's we're not so much in rivalry. We're not so much in cooperation. We're somewhere in, right down the middle. And the funny thing is if that what the, what the IPCC scientists then did, they ran the 22 integrated assessment models, which are all open source, you can check them, you can verify them, and ran them under the different socioeconomic pathways. And said, okay, do we manage, can we, can we find a way of how we can reach 1.2 or, uh, sorry, 1.5 or 2 degree global warming until 2100? under those boundary conditions, societal boundary conditions. And here is where I think something very, very problematic happened, because the IPCC said rightfully as scientists, cool, SSP1, clearly we can do it. SSP2, we can do it. There's even a two degree pathway in SSP5, but there is no, SS, uh, there is no 1.5 degree scenario in SSP3 and in SSP4. Right. And so let's read SSP3, a resurgent nationalism concerns over the competitiveness and security of regional conflict, fixed push boundaries to increase focus on domestic or at most regional issues, policies, basically feels like where we are right now. Well, I think it's even worse. I think if SSP3 and SSP4 would have an ugly child, this is where we are in. Inequality, highly unequal investments in human capital combined with increases in disparities in economic opportunity and political power lead to increasing inequalities and stratification both across and within countries yes i mean it feels like we are that yes. ugly child and and so this but this it feels is, like we've become that ugly child over the last five to ten oh, years yes. like absolutely. this is a recent issue absolutely which you can see with the conflict in ukraine russia and the culture wars. absolutely absolutely i'm 100 percent with you on that and i think this is where you need to understand the flaws of political institutions because then the ipcc made something which is from a policy perspective relatively straightforward and understandable but they said we do not have a 1.5 or 2 degree pathway for ssp3 and ssp4 so we reject them okay we just don't look at them we ignore them <laughs> we just focus on an illusionary world where we are all cooperative because we have the Paris Agreement and we build all the policies based on that. 
And we hope. And we hope. Yeah. And we YOLO into SSB1 or SSB2, build our policies around that, and then we just see what happens. Yeah. So this is essentially... Because if, if, if you don't, if you're SSP3 or SSP4, you might as well not do anything. Or you need to look at completely different options and completely different um, interventions that would make sense in an SSP3 or SSP4 world. The problem in those world with those different interventions, they're probably the likely, likely the scenarios that we've seen during COVID that haven't worked anyway and probably accelerated us towards SSP3 and SSP4. That might very well be. Yeah. Um, okay. I don't know, but I think what is interesting for us in this conversation with regards to Bitcoin, and, and I'm coming back to yeah. this later on, is, well, Bitcoin is made for exactly that world because it aligns the incentives in a, in a non-cooperative environment. It eliminates the trust that is required for cooperative action. So hmm. let's, we can qualify that later on. Yeah, yeah. I think it has different intervention points where this could make sense and will make sense. This show is brought to you by the Texas Blockchain Council. Now, on November the 17th and 18th, the Texas Blockchain Council are putting on the Texas Blockchain Summit in Bitcoin country, Austin, Texas. Now, you know how much I love out there. I'm going to be attending. The event is two days of thought leadership for Bitcoin. Day one is all that any Texas Bitcoin miner could ask for. Top Bitcoin CEOs and their teams will be hanging out in Austin. And day two has top policy leaders from the US, both federal and state legislators, senators, House of Representatives, CFTC commissioners. What more could you ask for? Yes, I'm not just promoting this. I'll be attending the event in Austin, hanging out with my Texas Bitcoin buddies and interviewing someone very important on stage. So make sure you book your ticket, come to the event, let's hang out to find out more head over to texasblockchainsummit.org and use the discount code PETERMC20 for a 20% discount at checkout and let them know that I sent you. This offer is valid until the end of October. Next up, it is BCB Group. BCB Group provide online business banking services for companies in the Bitcoin industry. And yes, I am a customer of BCB too. They heard about my difficulty with finding a payment services provider that understands Bitcoin and reached out to me. Now, BCB's clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds, and miners active in the UK and Europe, but they are expanding globally. They have an amazing network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients and all supported currencies. Now listen, I know some of you have had some trouble with this like me, and if you are looking for a banking provider who understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you want to become a BCB customer. Now if you want to find out more, please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter. Next up is my new sponsor, Wasabi who I will be now using to make sure my Bitcoin is private and I'm very excited about using their software. With the release of Wasabi 2.0, Bitcoin privacy is now effortless as the wallet has introduced privacy by default. Now, rather than having to choose to coin join, this can all be done automatically. So you just need to receive your Bitcoin, wait for the coin join, and then you can spend freely. All the magic happens automatically in the background, which is a massive UX improvement. You also get additional privacy through Tor integration into Wasabi 2.0, so you don't leak your IP address. And there are no more minimum denominations, so you can coin join any amount, and there's no more change. So any amount you receive from a coin join is private. Privacy is something I've been taking more seriously recently. And with Wasabi 2.0, this has made it so much easier. So definitely go and check it out. If you want to find out more, please head over to wasabiwallet.io, which is W-A-S-A-B-I-W-A-L-L-E-T 
Io. Also, today we have Gemini, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin, but I'm only ever buying. Come on, we're hodlers. We're not sellers. I'm also using the Gemini app for buying the dips, and I've been buying a lot of those recently. And I've also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. Both the app and the website make buying and selling Bitcoin super easy, and Gemini has invested in building industry-leading security since day one. Gemini are now also running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD, which is G-E-M-I-N-I.com forward slash WBD. Now, the second piece that I want to touch upon is now if we look at the models themselves, and that's super interesting. And I'm not a modeling expert, but I, I guess m most people know how modeling works. So essentially what you do is um, you have multivariables as inputs that you qualify, you, so you give them certain values, and then you run a so-called regression analysis, which then looks at possible outputs, and then asks the question, is this output that I need within the realm of the independent variables that I've used as inputs. So that this is essentially how, how modeling works. I don't think most people do know how modeling works. Okay. Do most people understand how modeling works now? Is, I mean, that, I is, do, that, is I, that a bit better I now? do now. I, I would have further questions. If we were making a show on modeling, I would oh, have no, further questions. please, then don't invite me. I would have further questions, <laughs> but you, you go bad. Then don't invite me. Um, and so what is... The models are still sort of black boxes for me because I'm not a modeling expert. There are people who are just much better at this than I am. But what is interesting is what is published is the the input variables that are considered for the models themselves. And I think here is where it gets really interesting because um, every model has essentially... Um, so the, the categories for the models, that, or the inputs for the models are all this, uh, are the same for all the models. So essentially they assume, what if we can make buildings way more efficient by X percent at scale? What if we can decarbonize traffic by X percent? What if we can um, mitigate landfill gas by X percent? What if we can use re regenerative uh, agriculture to produce our food? So these are very high-level assumptions that then go into these models, are then sort of cooked, <laughs> and then give you a certain output, whether under these assumptions the 1.5 or 2 degree targets can be reached or not. So again, and now we have two very interesting aspects where, where we essentially see flaws within the state of play of the climate community right now, because we're building all our climate actions on a false assumption that we are living in a cooperative world. And I'm here to put my hands down and say the Paris Agreement is dead. It will not be revived. We will not make it work. So we need to find better ways of how we can actually um, get to a two degree or 1.5 degree global warming without or without being in a cooperative environment. Okay, just on that. So you're saying it's dead. It isn't publicly dead. Mm -mm. Did, remind oh, no. me, did, did, did Trump pull America out of the, the Paris yes. Agreement? He did. Yes. Okay. And but it was a political stunt. Nobody oh, cared course. about it anyways. No, of course. We, we, no, it, yes, that was about Trump. Like, fully aware of that. But so also, just to be 100% clear, he pulled 
he pulled um, the US out of the Paris Agreement, but there is a four year delay period before you actually pull out. So there is the US has been there all along. Was there any validity to his arguments? Can you, Danny, can you look up why, like, what Trump said? No, because sometimes like, like can we just go, can we just please not go there? Because the argument was I'm I'm the president of America and not of Paris. Well, what you you say that, but actually there are times in the past I've been critical of Trump, and actually some of the things have been pretty good. Like, oh man, uh, I mean, uh, look at the UN speech in 2016 with regards to Germany. It was yeah, spot on. He was absolutely he nailed. Was absolutely it. spot yeah, on. He nailed it. He said absolutely they were true. too reliant on Russian yes. energy, yes. and here we are. Yes. Germany is facing. Uh, um, blackouts. Yes. I just want to know exactly what it is he said. And uh, can we just do it? Of course. It's your show. <laughs> <laughs> You're the guest, though. You can say no. Fuck you, Pete. I'm leaving. I mean, I've got his statement here. He right. said a lot. <clears throat> right. Let's go to the top. Uh, right. Thank you very much. Applause. Thank you. I would like to begin by addressing. Oh, no, no, I don't need that. I've just returned for a trip overseas. We're nearly 300. I don't care about that. My meet of the Tuesday. Right. One by one, we're keeping the promise I made to the American people during my campaign for president, whether it's cutting, job killing regulations, appointing and confirming a tremendous Supreme Court. Yada, yada, yada. On these issues and many more, we're following through on our commitments and I don't want anything to get in our way. I'm fighting every day for a great people of this country. OK, I get the point. My duty to protect American citizens, the United States will withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord. Applause. Thank you. Thank you. But begin negotiations to re-enter either the Paris Accord or entirely new transaction on terms that are fair to the United States, its business, its workers, its people, its taxpayers. So we're getting out. But we will start to negotiate. Yada, yada. I suppose that I can put no other consideration for the... Uh, the uh, taxpayers to absorb the cost of the loss of jobs, wages... Uh, draconian financial and economic burdens the agreement imposes on our country. Compliance with the terms of Paris Accord are onerous and energy restrictions it placed on the United States and would cost America as much as 2.7 million lost jobs by 2025, according to the National Economic Research Associate. This includes 440,000 fewer manufacturing jobs, what we need. I get. I mean, what I would want to know, where are those jobs lost, but are new jobs gained by you know, people moving into other areas? Okay, I mean, look. I went cross-eyed already. I mean, this is, it's all fair game. You know, it, it was a political stunt. Um, America first made, I mean, this move makes sense under an American but, first policy. But America is, is America the bi biggest pollutant? I imagine it's China. Still. still it no, it's still, it's still the US. It's still the US. Can, mm. can, can we have a look? look at that? And I wonder if it, it, because of that, the requirements under Paris Accord therefore hit them the most. Like, I'm not saying whether it's right or wrong. Because that's that's one of these challenges. It's like who bears it the goes, biggest burden? It, it goes. I mean, this is a this is a big and important conversation. No, China, China now is double the United States. Oh, the top ten okay. India's half of the US. Russia's UK isn't even top ten. Go UK. You need to try harder. Hmm. All right, go on. This plays into the argument like we cannot save the world. Yeah, you exactly. Yeah. yeah? The truth is the Paris Agreement made very clear through something that is called the National Determined Commitments, which have been signed by the countries, that this is the quota that you need to fulfill. So it was, ne it was never meant as you need to save the world, but it was meant as this is the problem and this is how we cut it down into national determined commitments and this is your share that you need to burden yeah i think the reason i wanted it up there was to make the point that one of the biggest problems well, is, yeah. the, is the political cycle 
and the yes. careers and objectives yes. of, of a president to be re-elected versus the needs of the planet. Yes. That is something that exists. The political cycle, the four-year, five-year political cycle, depending on the terms of your country, is often something which causes short-term decision-making which negatively mm. impact countries. Mm -hmm. Typically with the money and borrowing and debt that countries build up, tends to be built up because uh, current administrations are yes. always focused on being re-elected in four years. Yes. So they print the shit out of money and they kick, they pass the problem on to generations further down mm -hmm. the road. The political cycle, to me, is one of the most damaging things we have mm -hmm. in society. But it's a reality. But yeah, of course. Just, just to add one more point to the point, like, we cannot save the world. There is one element which builds uh, deliberate asymmetry into sharing the burden into the Paris Agreement, which is the so-called conversation around loss and damage, which means rich western countries have over decades fucked the poorer countries of course okay so the paris agreement wants to get that straight and say look because you have profited over proportionally from the extraction of goods um, and commodities and whatever and have over proportionally affected the poorer countries through the already um, um, uh, uh, the ramifications of climate change already you need to build up a fund, a loss and damage fund, to finance the adaptation measures in the poorer countries. Now, guess what happens? People say no. No, they signed that and they pledged. Well, what do you think happened then? I have no idea. Tell me. <laughs> Don't make me make a shit <laughs> guess. <laughs> <laughs> the fund never materialized. Right, okay. Because, of course, nobody wants to, to pay the bill. Um, but I also find that strange because I do know how much aid... Uh, large countries that oh, yeah. sends to other smaller countries. Yeah, yeah. And I know that's politicized itself, oh, yeah. but it does happen. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I cannot comment on that. I don't have any, any opinion, but I'm just saying, like, I'm looking at what do we have installed, what are the mechanics of the process, and where does it get stalled for what reason? Yeah. So, of course, the political cycle is a problem. Of course, the sellability, is that even a word, to your uh, constituents is a problem. Yes. Uh, but there's also very urgent needs that usually overrule and trump the long-term ambition of any country. Yeah. So let's be clear, these reports, they were written in 2018, so they were multi-annual bodies of work. So essentially what we're looking at is a rearview mirror into the happy camper age of 2015. Okay, when the Paris Agreement was signed and everybody was happy. 2022, fast forward, we are facing a very different world. Okay, Paris is dead, what now? Well, um, that's what we're here discussing, right? Yeah. yeah. So, I think our conversation would, would, it would help the conversation to start it from a very different place. Okay. And say, SSP1 is dead. Paris Agreement is dead. We're fucked. And I, I actually, I also say that in my company. So I, I'm the one that is known to be the one that says we're fucked. And don't get me wrong. I'm not saying this lightly. I, no, went, no, no. I went through very, very hard phases. I worked, I worked for the European Union in this climate action field for seven years. I've seen it to the bone how these, uh, this, this, these organizations operate. Again, I'm not blaming it. I'm doing a real a surgical analysis out of my experience and drawing my own conclusions how i as an individual can contribute to an effort to make this a better world yeah no i i mean but i also agree i i also think we're fucked oh yeah <laughs> and like i i know the issues there have i drastically changed even my life at an individual level no i haven't i'm a fucking hypocrite um 
But we all are. Yeah, but at the same time, uh, I'm looking at countries and their energy production is only going in one direction, okay? And we mm-hmm. needed to go, you know, certainly in terms of renewables, in a, in a drastically different direction. And we are in a world in conflict. Mm-hmm. And I just don't see... Every time I read something like you've put together or somebody else, I was like, this is just not going to happen. Like, in my head, I'm there's part of me that's already thinking... What is the mitigation I put in place to protect my children when we head to a very different world oh, yeah. because things haven't happened? Like, but you know the answer. You have an answer to that. I have an answer to that. So you I know, build a bunker, have lots of Bitcoin <laughs> and gold, produce my own food, get yeah. some guns, yeah. some tin pineapple. Yeah, I mean, to to parts of that that I agree, you know. But I think it 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 offers us a, a different level of conversation to look at where does it make sense to interact or, t- or, or rely on governments and where do we need to take a bottom-up um, um, uh, or where do we need to build a bottom-up movement that can allow us to, to, to regain agency in a process that we got completely disenfranchised. Hold on, so are you, point, are you saying that we should no longer rely on centralized institutions to solve this? You think this can come? I think up? it needs to come from us. Okay. I, think, I personally think that we are the... the we're seeing the end of the traditional institutions as we know it. Yes, they're breaking. Um, yeah, and and I think it, it totally makes sense if you look at if you look at at, at uh, uh, again into history and how people always seek to to find some level of coordination and cooperation and these proof of stake resembling third parties that sort of we can we can sort of rely on and trust to do things for us that we would not be able to otherwise do ourselves in an uncoordinated manner. They have been proven very useful until a certain point. Okay. Huh. Okay. And I think what we need to be prepared about, uh, to, prepare, to, to be prepared for is that those institutions do understand that they are in decline. Um, I'm, a, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big European. I consider myself a European citizen. I love this continent for all its diversity, its differences, its cultural differences. It's, um, I've not been much to the US, so I, I don't want to. I don't want to praise that too much. But can I ask a question yes. on that? Are you also pro EU? Not pro EU in the current form. I mm. think there is. Uh, I think the nail in the coffin of the European Union, as it is right now, went in at the latest in two thousand and four. Now I can explain to you if you're interested what that means. Yeah. But there's a reason I ask you because I'm right. very, very pro-Europe. As somebody who travels to America a lot and also loves a huge amount of, about America, I love the diversity in America. But I also think that a lot of people, a lot of Europeans, could benefit from understanding America more and vice versa. Yes. I, the thing I love about Europe is my favorite things about Europe is I can travel anywhere in Europe. Oh yeah. Feel very safe. Oh yeah. And meet people with a different language and different culture. Mm-hmm but a very similar outlook on life, quite a similar sense of humor. Mm-hmm. I think Europeans uh, are, have, a, have a very uh, very good ability to to work together, to cooperate, mm-hmm. even though we are you know, essentially different countries. Mm-hmm. I, think, uh, I think post-World War II, I think what's happened in Europe is incredible. Yeah. I struggle with the EU, but that's the bureaucrats we are, we are, fucking we are, it up. We are on the same page, and I think this, this is why it pains me so much. Um, because I think that, that there is the, the price that we paid for free movement 
and not to convert to another currency is what we see now is is too high for what we get for what we pay on the other on, on the other side of the equation but you, so, but you can blame you can blame the f the problems in that on on essentially the same people you can blame with the problems oh, no, in let the me us let me it's explain. all the let centralized me, institutions yeah, 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 yeah. Like, and, and how they have been built i mean yeah. i think the the uh so let's not go too much into the details of how the eu does its its legislation and how uh, and how it builds its its institutions but i think one piece is really really important the the post war stability came essentially from the two big nations within the european union which is uh, germany and france okay <coughs> so this is essentially where the two big Yes, I'm, I'm sorry, but this is essentially, you know, these were two war parties. Yeah? These were the two war parties that had to reconcile and find peace with each other. This is essentially the big axis in the, in the European Union. I know you look at me very well. Disgusted, you know, I mean, it was Churchill. <laughs> it was Churchill who st stood his ground against Hitler. I mean, I think he played a very important role. But come on, I'll, I don't want to. I don't want to idealize <laughs> it. But it's, this is essentially, you I'll know, what, with you. yeah, no. And slightly um, disappointed. So, and I think a lot of this. A lot of this institutionalism that followed was very much built on it's gonna be fine we're gonna work this out because we trust each other and we know where blind trust leads us you know um, and I think where this 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 problem really surfaced was when we introduced a monetary union around 2000 without actually having a plan for a fiscal union well there was no fiscal union well it was in plan it was in plan. It was in plan, but it got voted down by the French and by the Dutch in 2005. Mm -hmm. Okay, so essentially, suddenly you were stuck in the monetary union without actually knowing how you're going to balance that on the other end of the equation. Mm. So, and this is, I think, where where the asymmetry started to really show, and where the destabilization process actually started. And now you have a EU that is by the way really efficient it's using very little money for its administrative processes okay but it does not it does not have a lot of geopolitical power institutions to get anything done okay so it's do, do you know about the whole moving of the uh, european parliament to strasbourg for three days every month i don't know about that. this is insane this is my favorite thing about uh the european parliament daddy look look this up Search up the European Parliament in Strasbourg. So, as far as I'm aware, when the original uh, agreements and discussions about forming uh, the European Parliament were created, uh, France were suspicious of it being entirely based in Belgium. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. We're just, uh, we're just loading this up. Why does the European Parliament move between Brussels and Strasbourg? Because they were looking at ways to save money and they realized 103 million euros were spent annually. Here we go. The EU's national government uh, decided in 1992 to lay down in the EU treaty where the EU institutions are officially seated. The decision had important consequences for the working arrangements for the parliament, its official seat and venue, blah, 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 blah. A 2013 study by the Europa European Parliament shows 103 million euros could be saved per year should all European Parliament operations be transferred from Strasbourg to Brussels. This is no, that's not it. That's not what it is. But you're pointing into. But the point it. is, you're, every, you're pointing every into a good month, direction. For three days, 
The lorries go to Brussels, they collect everything, they move it all to Strasbourg, and they operate there for three days a month. Mm -hmm. And then they move it all back. All the computers Because it's all based on quotas. It's all based on quotas. Every country needs to have a certain EU institution. Yeah, but Every country needs a commissioner, blah, blah, blah. blah. This yeah, is but how it come goes. on. Somebody at some point must have said, hold on. So what you're saying is we're going to move the whole parliament for three days. This is fucking idiotic. Yeah. But they did it. They, they do yeah. it. <laughs> but, but, you know, let's not, get, let's not get hung up on that. I know. I just it, think it's funny. It is, it is funny. And, and it's also ridiculous, you yeah, know. But this and is the you people we're relying be, on. You should not be surprised that people are losing their trust in those type of institutions. No, of course. You know, if the only legislation you get done is what type of vegetables you're allowed to sell in your store. You know, it's ridiculous. And I think that, you know, I read this yesterday. I don't know who posted it, but it was really interesting. Um, our relationship to to the national government or to 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 um, um, uh, a superior government like like the EU, there is still a relationship. You know, it's not either or. It's not either or. It's both. Um, relies on the fact that I give up my freedoms and liberties to a certain extent. I comply with with the laws in exchange for security, which means you supply with me, you supply me with um, energy, uh, or you provide energy sufficiency, you provide food sufficiency, you provide me with a stable currency, you provide me with defense, and the, you can do none, none of that. Benjamin okay? Franklin will be shaking his head. Is it Benjamin Franklin who said that? Whoever gives up security yeah but it's a european it's a, I, I know i know is, i think well, this is really imp important to understand that there is there is something deeply european and i think also something deeply healthy in this ability and this wanting to trust each other but this can go badly wrong you know like <laughs> was it benjamin franklin yeah he said those who would give up essential liberty to purchase a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety right, yeah. which is a very very it sounds very cool Mm -hmm. But actually, I wouldn't go that far. Well, that Europe is built on co cooperation. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. And I think this is this is why if you do a surgical analysis of we've moved now from Paris Agreement to political institutions, now you can ask yourself, okay, if I want to do something, what is my best shot that I have to gain agency in both the climate um, um, challenge as well as as a citizen in 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 the European Union? or in this continent. And I, th and I still, and I, and I think that Bitcoin has a role to play in both. Okay. Yeah. So my vision for, well, let's, let's make it very concrete. I think I want to bring in another piece that, I, that could be interesting um, to discuss, which is how now this, what we agree is a rather dysfunctional body, um, approaches crypto and Bitcoin. Because there's a big, 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 big regulation coming out well, I, I do have a, another question before we get to that. Yes. Like, what is the actual solution? Because we're about to get into the the method of solving this and yeah. how we get there. But like, what is the solution? Like, <laughs> <laughs> thanks for asking the simple questions. Uh -oh. um, this, well, by the way, this chart that uh, is is incredible. Anyone who's listened to the show, we're about to walk through a chart which talks about energy use energy generation uh, is brilliant I think it's it's one of the most um, resourceful sites that that anyone can dig into who is interested in data not only regarding climate change uh, but also economic activity I recommend that a lot so what we can see here is that yeah, try to explain how this chart looks yeah, to somebody yeah, who's listening yeah yeah we so will put it in the show notes but so it's essentially a pie chart that 
describes in detail per industry what the industry's contribution, the sector's contribution to greenhouse gas emissions is. And it ties it out in a way that sort of in the, in the highest aggregation form, we only have a couple of um, big industries left which contribute to essentially 100% of GHG um, emissions. And what we can see is that the energy sector directly or indirectly contributes about 75%, give or take, to the CO2 emissions. And I think that's important. If you ask me, what is the solution? We need to understand energy. We need to understand energy generation, energy um, distribution and energy consumption and where the majority of the of the energy is actually consumed. So, so just a quick question. I'll explain yeah. to the people who are listening. So the pie chart essentially says energy is 73.2%. Agriculture, forestry and land use is 18.4%. Yeah. Waste is 3.2%. And yeah. then industry is 5.2%. And then with each, in each one of those, when you go and check out the chart, it breaks it down further. Mm-hmm. But where we have industry as cement and chemicals as... 3% and 2.2% separately. Yeah. But within energy use, we have iron and steel at 7.2%. What is, why is uh, cement and chemicals not, is that a byproduct of the manufacturer? I cannot answer that question. I think there are some, there are some um, conscious choices around how this gets displayed. Um, because you're absolutely right. I mean, but, sem- it could, but it could be that cement, the production of cement leads to a CO2 emissions Whereas iron and steel, it's the use of the energy. It's indirect, yes. Yeah, it's indirect and indirect. So it could be that. I'd like to know that. Okay. Um, And then, so when I see iron and steel is 7.2% total, Mm -hmm. that is in using the the energy that that industry uses. So if you electrify that part, if the energy generation came from renewables, for Mm -hmm. all of that, that could be zero. Mm -hmm. Okay, interesting. Directly zero, but indirectly, of course, you would have an effect. Yes, and I would look at something like aviation at one point nine percent and say, "Well, we can't do anything about that because we're not going to, like Boeing, are not going to produce." We cannot do it. Yes, we cannot do anything structural about it yeah. uh, because people want to move, yeah. and people will want to move, um, and there is no way that in the short term we can substitute the the fuel to um, um, uh, synthetic fuels in a way that it would help the climate cause. But I think it's an, actually an interesting um, um, item you're pointing towards because we get a lot hung up on these very, very, these really nice examples of shaming airlines. Yeah, and we shame airlines and exactly, it's like it's exactly. 2% and we and it, shame Bitcoin it, mining. Exactly. I wonder where Bitcoin would be on this chart. And, it would be like a... Well, a, I think it's, this is exactly the conversation that we need to have. So sorry, one um, more question before we start breaking it down. So when I see deforestation as yes. 2.2%, yes. but that isn't an increase, that isn't the carbon going into the atmosphere. That's actually... That's the opportunity cost. Yes, the opportunity cost exactly. by we have an, yes. a, a reduced... Yes. Yes. Uh, absorbent yes. absorption of carbon, carbon. sequestration okay. yeah this chart's fucking brilliant yeah. I'm like, I'm, I'm, honestly if you're listening whether you whatever your beliefs are go and check this chart out it's fascinating yeah and i think this is once you see it from that aggregated level you also understand that um if you ask me now where are the different intervention points where bitcoin could make sense it becomes pretty clear so we need to distinguish two two things here there are there's energy that gets produced and generated which never sees a grid 
right? Mm -hmm. So for instance, these uh, large steel mills, mills, they usually have direct purchasing agreements, long-term direct purchasing agreements with, um, for their baseline with a reliable energy supplier, but they also um, purchase energy from the grid. Well, what, what my question is very simple. Yeah. Uh, if we want to, re you know, reduce the the burning, or if we want to reduce the amount of uh, increase in carbon in the atmosphere, what are the quick wins here? So you look at something like transport, 16.2%. Mm -hmm. If we move to an electrified fleet of vehicles globally, that means that that is a number we can erode. Yes. If you are sure that the electrification or the, 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 the energy actually comes from a, re a renewable source which is not that easy. Yeah. And I think this is, this is exactly where we have to have a more nuanced conversation. Because what we now know is where we start from, this conversation start from is we know that the majority of the grid is still considered fossil, so carbon intensive. Okay. There's a growing minority of the grid um, that is renewable. The problem here is that this is this is a complex interaction between the energy generators the grid operators and the consumers mm. okay so um it's not that easy to just say and you've you've covered that we don't have to go into the, into this in detail right i mean jean connell talked about that yep. very eloquently there is an uh there is a lever here that we where we say how can we start to decarbonize the energy sector by slowly emphasis on slowly substituting fossil fuel um, related energy sources with renewable energy sources. Why does this m make economic sense? Because the, the, the price curve for the renewables is massively decreasing, while obviously the marginal cost for fossil fuel is going up because it gets harder and harder to produce it. Now we are in a very special circumstance at the moment which is not reflective <laughs> yeah. for um, neither the past nor hopefully the, the long-term future. Uh, just a quick question. Go. What's, the, what's the role of nuclear in this for you? Personally, yeah. I think nuclear needs to be a part of the equation. Agreed. Um, if you look at how efficiently we use energy, we've moved from you know, a little bit of dry grass to wood, to coal, to uranium yeah so it's to fission to, to maybe to fission in the future well fingers crossed yeah um but i think when we talk about base load so uh, an insured reliable base load supply nuclear needs to be part of the equation it's it's from a uh, climate perspective it's clean cleanish cleanish yes Yes, you have a long-term problem of storage. We found out the other day yeah. that the, uh, the the big tanks of green goo is a myth. I was kind of disappointed. What is green goo? You know, like in The Simpsons at the nuclear plant, <laughs> they, have the, they have the big tanks of green goo that leaks into the river and creates a free, three eye fish. There's no, there's no, there's no, no shit. There's um, no green goo. Okay. Okay. Was, I'm I, super relieved to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I might sound like a moron and I hope I get backed up by here, but I imagine there was some kind of goo. Did you? I mean, I didn't expect it to be like The Simpsons, but I, I didn't know what it looked like. <laughs> Did you expect what? it to be a goo, though? I don't think so, is the truth. I expected, like, rods. Shut up. You're just saying that I mean, to make me look stupid. Yeah. See, that's why he's the natural successor. <laughs> <laughs> like, fuck you, Danny. 
All right. And I think once we once we start to understand that it's not that simple to stabilize grids through sca simple scaling of renewable energies, we start to uh, we, I think we start to have a better conversation about what it really takes um, to accomplish that. For instance, we know that there is a massive amount of projects that have been developed specifically in the UK, by the way, through um, government subsidies for solar and wind. And to anyone who says, yes, but it's government subsidies, let's just be real. The fossil fuel industry is highly Six subsidized. Trillion. Yeah. Six trillion. So, yeah. come on. So, this is, not, this is not a free market. It's a highly, highly corrupted market for various reasons. Uh -huh. um, and so, what happens now is if you have these projects, which essentially could generate a lot of energy, we're talking gigawatts here and gigawatt hours here, um, this cannot be dispatched to the grid. And why is that? Because the grid operator say, says, with this additional supply, we cannot balance our grid uh, proportionally or, or appropriately because we do not know how we can dispatch it to a demand. Yeah? And so they say, well, either our... Um, so what we need to do now is to, um, to, to widen our bandwidth. So we need more bandwidth on, on the grid. And the question is, who is going to pay for that? Now, the grid operator says, I'm not going to pay for that. But the regulator says, you have to do that. Mm. And, then the, and then the grid operator says, if I have to do it, then I will cascade the cost down to the end consumer. So we see this is a very, very complex relationships and the, and, and the political game of who is, who, is, who is carrying the water in the very end. And on top of that, you have now, someone needs to have these projects in the 100 millions on their books. Now, these are very costly projects that still have a maintenance cost, but don't return you anything. From the people behind sportsbet.io, we have BitCasino. So they are now running a very cool competition where you can join me at the North London Derby, Arsenal v Tottenham, hopefully to see Arsenal absolutely spank Tottenham. Now they have created a Bitcoin box at the Emirates Stadium and they're going to be giving away two tickets to the match. It's on October the 1st and to find out how to enter, just check out their pinned tweet at twitter.com forward slash bitcasinoio. That is twitter.com forward slash B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O-I-O. Also, please remember to gamble responsibly. Next up today, we have Ledin. Now, from savings accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Ledin's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of holding today without selling their Bitcoin. With the recent events in the lender market, Ledin demonstrated that their robust risk management strategy was the right approach. They don't actively trade or invest in DeFi yield generation and have experienced zero losses as a result of their strategy. Ledin only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They are also dedicated to transparency and are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation, which they re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Ledin is there to support all your needs. And not only Ledin are a sponsor, I am also a customer of theirs now. I am using their services. So if you want to find out more, please head over to ledin.io, which is L-E-D. N.io. Next up, it's the Pacific Bitcoin Conference hosted by Swan Bitcoin on November the 10th and 11th this year in sunny Los Angeles. Now, I've known Corey, Yan and Brady for years, and they've been pulling out all the stops to make the Pacific Bitcoin Conference a celebration of the Bitcoin community. I'm going to be emceeing the conference alongside my friends Natalie Brunel and Stefan Levera. And there's going to be an incredible lineup of speakers, including Lynn Alden, Alex Gladstein and Preston Pish. 
Now, Pacific Bitcoin is going to be the right mix of education and good fun with unique experiences. They've got a surfing simulator and loaded with other events and parties before and after the event. They're bringing the brightest minds in Bitcoin to discuss a range of topics from macro to nation estate adoption, mining and lightning. And you're not going to want to miss this inaugural Pacific Bitcoin conference. I know it's going to be a special event. Now, Swan are offering a huge 30% discount to listeners of the show. Just go to PacificBitcoin.com and use the code PETER at checkout. That is P-A-C-I-F-I-C-B-I-T-C-O-I-N.com and use the code PETER. Also today, we have Ledger. Now, recent events have highlighted just how important self-custody is. And Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you as a Bitcoiner to take control of your Bitcoin and the world's most popular hardware wallet just got better. Ledger have recently announced the launch of the new Nano S+. The larger screen makes it easier to manage and verify your Bitcoin transactions, and the Nano S Plus maintains the same high level of security as all other Ledger products. Now, I have been a Ledger customer since 2017, and I absolutely love the S Plus. Now, if you want to find out more, if you want to check this out, if you want to purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to shop.ledger.com, which is shop.ledger.com. But if we look at where it has happened... Mm -hmm. Uh, parts of Scandinavia have been very successful very. moving to renewables. Even Germany was fairly successful in transitioning to some renewable. Fairly, Germany was was Germany was the pioneer of all of this. Yes, yeah. But they de decommissioned their nuclear mm. plants and became reliant on yes. German, yes. Uh, sorry, Russian natural gas, which was it's a separate issue. Yeah. But can, and also Texas is isn't Texas like seventy percent? Oh, I think wrong. it's had days over seventy. Days, yeah, days, days over. Yes. But like Texas as an oil and gas, <laughs> it's oil and gas country over mm -hmm. there, boy. And they've they have uh, successfully been transitioning yes. over time to renewables. Yes, because the, the 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 business case makes sense. Yes. Now you ask me, what are the solutions? Okay. Yeah. What is the natural price of energy? if you produce it or generate it. Nothing, it's zero. So you need a customer to pay something for it. Now, what you're looking for is um, buyers of first resort. Who is willing to buy that energy under all circumstances? The there government. Are, there are not, no, there are not many. There are not many. The government isn't? Well, what do you do with this energy? You need to, you understand, you need to understand about energy. You cannot just discard it. Energy cannot be destroyed. So. Once you produce the energy, it needs to be actively managed out if nobody uses it. Mm -hmm. Do you want to hear a cool example on that? Tell me. So in Austria, the main energy uh, supplier has um, an agreement, a framework agreement with the Austrian railways. So that if they have too much supply running on their grid, the Austrian railways is running their locomotives empty just to kill the energy, just to destroy the energy. Oh yeah, this is like running the toasters, right? It's mm. like running the toaster, but the locomotive takes a bit more energy. So this is really good. So once you understand that, you can ask who is the buyer and who is, or who pays here? Uh -huh. Who pays here? The energy provider yeah. pays. Okay, so it's negatively priced energy. So they might as well so spend that on some ASICs. And what what, what if you only would have a solution that would, um, that would buy this energy either for free or for a symbolic one cent, you already would be in a better situation than if you were just, you know, always troubled by how to curtail and how to kill this energy. Okay, so listen, we've covered this on the show a lot. Yeah. Bitcoin miners will buy that. 
Bitcoin because we'll buy that. They will buy it, and if they, it's a low enough price, they will take that and they will turn that into money, and mm-hmm. we will grow the Bitcoin network. Cool. We will increase security. We'll improve the money. We'll yes. improve the world. We, we've, we've covered this. So my question for you is, like, everybody listening knows that. They mm-hmm. buy that. Great. Two things. Firstly, if every single grid was mm-hmm. to attach Bitcoin uh, miners to his network firstly are there enough ASICs available now is the network big enough to support all of them I'm not sure it is so Bitcoin itself needs to grow mm-hmm. Bitcoin needs to be a, a bigger network and, and the market cap needs to be higher so that's something but that's fine because we know this is a transitional period and it will take time but how does that how will that lead to how will that lead to more uh, or, the, or an increase in uh, the development of renewables well, how does, why does Bitcoin incentivize that? All Bitcoin does is incentivize the buy-in of energy. But they could buy that off a coal plant. They could buy that off a nuclear plant. They could buy the excess energy from anyone. How does, and they will. And they will. Mm-hmm. So, so why, what is this connection here to renewables? Because if you take the whole subsidy pl- game out of play. Okay, free market. Free market. Full free market. Then if you look at the marginal cost of a kilowatt hour produced by fossil fuel, it's going to be way higher the marginal cost. The marginal cost. Yes. Because it's zero, the it's, renewable. It's close to zero on wind and solar. Yeah. And, and I mean, you need to dig deeper to get the, the oil actually out of the earth. Yeah. So you need to get it first out. You need to transport it. You need to refine it. You mm-hmm. need to transport that again. That all builds cost into the kilowatt hour to order the energy that you can get out of it. So there is a natural incentive by simple economics to switch to renewables. Now, yes, it's true. We have the problem of intermittence on the renewable side, but this is not something that we can not solve for. It's just an additional problem which can be solved either through... Well, it is being solved. Well, not really. Well, Let's it, be realistic. No, no, no on, on 100% grid, no, but but the energy sector, like who, what was NEMA we had in yesterday? Yeah. NEMA um, we had in yesterday, we were talking about this with him. Um, the energy, the energy network originally, like say the UK network, yeah, a few decades ago, would have been ten coal power plants mm-hmm. powering the entire country. And now what we have is a highly decentralized, complex network yes. where energy comes can come from coal. It can yes. come from me with solar panels on my roof. Mm-hmm. It's it's a it's a stronger network in some ways because it's become decentralized. Decentralized, decentralized. absolutely. But it, in that, we still have an, a network which uh, is flexible. We, we do still have that. So mm-hmm. as we've become more decentralized, as we've had more renewables, the network is adapted to become more flexible, to deal with the intermittency. So, so it is being solved partially. I, I th- maybe, are you telling me or you disagree with me or are you saying it's not solved to the point where we could have a 100% renewable network? I, uh, no, it's not solved to a point where we can provide through renewable sources the energy requirement that is needed to substitute fossil fuels. I don't, buy, I don't know what the, the, the precise percentage is. But we can produce enough energy from the sources. The intermittency yes. is the issue. Yes, yes. So, so is the... But this is exactly why you need so much more flexible supply in order to have a, 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 a grid that is stabilized with the bandwidth. So you need to overproduce. Exactly, of course. Okay, and, and is overproduction enough? Or will you, will you still have an intermittency? In, Intermittence. I was about to say, intermittence. 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 Intermittence
Is there like, or, or will you still have that? Because well, yeah, it sounds to me is like what we need is a balance of nuclear renewables. Yes. And some Case batteries. Closed. And by yeah. the way, he, you know, actually, um, not only. But no, I, I think this is this is something you mentioned. Germany. I think Germany is a really interesting case because they've termed this, they've coined this term of power to X. Okay. So the idea of temporarily storing power or excess power in other forms is not new. You can do a lot of things. Power to X could be power to mining. Could be power to gas. Could be power to oil yeah because essentially if you have higher aggregated molecules um you can synthesize them as well as much as you can break them down you know it's just chemically stored energy is it efficient not really but it's a way of how you can actually store energy that is that doesn't find a demand which can be dispatched later when you need it and this is why batteries at scale are so important but batteries at industrial scale are not there yet no and it it feels like one of those pro hard problems to solve mm -hmm. that I don't be seeing solved soon. But that said, Nima said batteries are still being used. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the, the whole idea of the German energy transition focusing also on electric vehicles was that you essentially have a, a mobile fleet of batteries that in aggregate is big enough to provide that balancing factor. Hmm. It's quite interesting because... So what you do there is, is an, we are used to to very linear um, energy flows. Okay, there's a there's a there's a generation, there's a transmission, there's a consumption, but these um, um, the bidirectional loading capabilities. This is something very new. So essentially, you could say, oh, here, dear Tesla driver, here is a here is axis of energy. Would you mind stopping for thirty minutes to take that off for me? You get a super good price. And at a later point, you could also get the reminder to say, look, I could really use your energy. Do you want to provide that back? And this is the price I pay you. I actually think, uh, personally think it's one of the ideas would be to have the batteries also in within the home. The idea of the Tesla battery on the wall. I, like, I mentioned to Neem, I've looked into having solar panels here. Yeah. And the idea was that over time, my energy, uh, I think it pays back over eight years. And my, mm -hmm. eventually my energy gets cheaper coming from solar. But I said to the guy, well, the, the scenario I'm actually interested in is a scenario where we have a blackout and I actually still have power. And he's like, okay, well, that's a different solution. Yes. You actually need to have uh, a, a battery. Uh, sorry, you, yeah, you need to have a battery here. But you also have to have a generator in case there's complete failure. So mm -hmm. it's a different scenario. Mm -hmm. But if there's an overproduction of energy and we are... Uh, um, charging the batteries in a home then the homes could be using those batteries at a time and the uh, the, the solar could, could be going straight to the grid it's a very interesting conversation to be had because there's so many people who are interested in in or we can do this actually live yeah. what was your first question that you asked yourself when you were considering the, the solar panels on your roof the the um how many years would it pay back because okay. it's an expensive cost. It was like thirty thousand pounds. Yes. You know, so when you, know, you also ask yourself the question how much how much how much energy is needed? What's sufficient for me to run what I need to run? No, I don't. I, oh, you it, didn't do that. No, okay, because I, I live. <laughs> no, but I live a life where I turn on the lights, and at the end of the month, I pay a bill, and the the bills. It's only recently I've looked at because the bills have gone up a lot. Oh yeah. But that my first question was, what is the payback for the investment? Mm -hmm. Because thirty thousand pound is a lot of money, right? And if I'm saving, I don't know, a few thousand pound a year on my mm -hmm. you know, my bills or whatever it was, whatever the cost was, it's like how many years did it pay back? Maybe it wasn't eight years. Maybe it was longer. 
but but that was my first question and my second question was is this a solution if there's a blackout will i still have energy mm -hmm. in a blackout maybe that was the thirty thousand to have the additional things or that. okay they were the two things mm -hmm. i cared about mm -hmm. that's i think most people care about the dimensioning they say well how much energy do i need and how much can this thing provide to me oh so yeah. but for me that was him solved that mm -hmm. he like he, mm -hmm. he's the consultant mm -hmm. he looks at my energy bill and he tells me what i need mm -hmm. on the roof my mm -hmm. care about is like how long to repay and am I protected in a blackout? Yeah, and, and what is true for the for the home is true for the grid. Yeah. You know, um, essentially, this is how we've built energy systems. We say, well, we, we, we really know how big demand is at any given time. And these, and these simulations are just very, very robust and very good in most of the cases. And we, we generate only as much as we need plus uh, a legally required um, um, a buffer, um, an insurance scheme on top. Um, so that it can fluctuate a bit left and right. But in, in, in the future energy systems, I think it's going to look very differently. We say, well, we just provide as much demand as we possibly can so that it does, we're not limited in the supply we actually generate. Right. And that is true for your home because you can now overdimension this for your use, for your utility use, so you will then have an oversupply. You can either put that back into the grid or you can charge your, your electric car and store it in there and use the energy in case of a blackout. Is that dimensioning enough? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, no, it is. It is. Yeah. So, so or you can run a Bitcoin miner and repay a little bit from there. That as well. Yes. A battery with a miner mm -hmm. sounds like a very mm -hmm. good business. Mm -hmm. So, and I think that's a very robust case because we know, you know, there is also this FUD around um, old miners will be discarded. Because this is not a very efficient business. It's not going to be like a high intense mining operations, you know, yeah. but you just want to use your the, the, the sur uh, surplus energy in a way that it makes sense for you. So you will always go for a cheap second hand as nine um, to that you get basically for free um, to reduce your capex have zero OPEX. So essentially whatever you mine is yours. Yeah, I mean, at, at zero cost energy, every miner, yeah. even an S7. Mm -hmm. Is beneficial yes yeah okay so look what is the pathway like how how does this happen mm -hmm. because at the moment we're in a world where 1.5 well paris is mm -hmm. done we're fun mm -hmm. 1.5 might be missed if we don't get this right we know if we electrify the grid globally mm -hmm. uh, we have a chance of hitting that because mm -hmm. we're putting less carbon in the atmosphere we know that if you overproduce and you attach Bitcoin miners, that solves part of the mm -hmm. grid. But how does this all happen? How do we go from a point of view? You and I are just discussing this and yes. some people do. How do we see meaningful action? I think this is where it then becomes interesting to educate people. Um, also policymakers. Now, I do not think that if I, if I read, for instance, um, regulations in Europe that sort of regulate crypto assets. I'm reading it only from the lens, not what does this enable us to do, but what does it potentially, how does it actually potentially jeopardizes the things that I think or you think or we think are necessary so that this can happen at scale. Now, for instance, if I read the, the Mika bill, the, the, the um, the regulation on crypto asset, which the EU has been putting forward, I was very, very concerned when they tried to attack Bitcoin mining specifically 
in the first draft of the bill. Yeah. So this would have been something hugely concerning for me. Now, I'm super happy to see that this has been voted out. Yeah. So it's done. Yeah. yeah? So the EU... Laters. Will... Say again? We say laters. See you yeah. later. See you. <laughs> see you later, motherfucker. And I think this is, this is exactly how we need to approach it. Now, the question is, so what? Okay. So at the same time, there are task forces that re deal with grid reliances that write huge reports on how important demand response is going to be for the future of the smart grids. But nobody's connecting the dots. So I mean, the, uh, this is, and this is hugely problematic for me. I don't care about shitcoin regulations. I don't care about NFTs. I don't care about any of that. It's all regulated. By the way, the good thing is that stablecoins get very, very clearly regulated. So I think this is also, also a net positive for, for the community as a whole. Uh, but Bitcoin is not mentioned there at all. So it's only attacked through proxy wars, you know, yeah, Envi well, environmental issues, KYC, yeah, AML know, issues and so on and so forth. Old school FUD. Exactly. But I think like the power of the future institutions that we're trying to build is not coming from top down centralized, but we need to build this. And I think this is where we need to sort of make a clean analysis on the on the problems make a a, a, a a pragmatic assessment of the situation i don't care i mean 2.2 degrees 1.5 i don't care we have a solution that could help us to decarbonize our economies well danny yeah? and me were talking about this the other day one of the things we're missing here in the uk and in europe it, we are missing a coin center or a bitcoin policy but institute. this is exactly the point if you understand and this is exactly the point i'm 100 percent with you on this the problem is that institutions that run only on faces need counterparties who only run on faces so the eu none none of these people understand bitcoin only the slightest so that's why you know it's it's like telling them have a negotiation with air well this it, is why it, it, <laughs> this is why i wanted to talk and i want to have an open discussion i say this i say this lightly like it's just reality but i want to have a discussion with somebody in the cabinet and say to them you have green policy agenda, okay? Well, we can help. Bitcoin mining can help this. We can incentivize the growth in mm -hmm. uh, um, renewables, and we have a buyer of last resort who will take that excess energy from you so we can help you hit your uh, green goals. By the way, at the same time, you can become an innovation center mm -hmm. for Bitcoin development yeah. within Europe. I would, I would go even a step further for me. Yeah. Well, and also we can protect ourselves from your the the policy decisions of your own government's incompetence mm -hmm. in the central bank and that one might not go down so well maybe not mention that one but there's so many there's so many benefits to you having a pro bitcoin yeah agenda that that yeah anyway you get my I, I i think i i my dream scenario is the following we say look because we also need to understand there's a language bridge that we need to build bitcoin fixes this didn't help us because it's abstract it's patronizing it's not nice nobody wants to be treated that way there's a language piece that needs to fill into this or feed into this and i think the ssp language the shared socioeconomic pathways thing really helps us there because there's nothing wrong with saying look behind closed doors or in or on open doors we agree the paris agreement is not going to fly but we need to acknowledge a world where we are in a SSP3 world. 
your models, which I would really like to see open, do not account or do not find a pathway forward for a 1.5 um, degree world. Now, what would happen if we into all of these inputs on the different stages at what we know about Bitcoin right now? And how would the models look different? I'm talking, for instance, about all the methane work that is going on on the various fields. It's so exciting, you know, when we understand that only using the, the, the flared gas could provide four times the energy input that is required to power the Bitcoin network. I agree. The problem is that the network is too small to actually be a critical player in this game. But this is hopefully only a transitional stage. Yep. Now, when we incorporate the whole work that is done on methane and landfills and flare and flared gas concretely as a, as a, as an op as a, as a mechanism into these models, if we use the whole energy conversation that we just had very concretely, greening energy is, is just one of the inputs. Um, if you can make that concrete, with very clear parameter. What's the size that we need? What's the volume that we need? What would that cost? How many ASICs would that actually be? If you make these models very concrete and you run the models again, would we come to a 1.5 degree world, yes or no? And I think the data are partially there. I got this idea when talking, to, uh, not talking, uh, when reading the work of um, uh, Den Daniel Patton? Yes. Daniel Patton, mm. yeah. Yes. I mean, once we understand, uh, I would be interested to hear how he ran the model that he gets to a reduction of 1 point, uh, 0.1 degrees or 0.15, I think, even, which is a lot if you think about 1.1 being already priced in. So we have a margin of 0.4. He can provide with his calculations 0.1 already. That's massive. That's not reflected in any of the model work of the IPCC. Is he the guy in Australia? He's in New Zealand, yeah. yeah. Why is he so far away? Could we, could we now pull all this work together that is done in the energy field, that is done in the properties field, building stocks, that's the thing, um, in the landfill and um, methane burning and flare gas work, can we pull this all together? Can we run the same models, but with better data, can we get to a 1.5 degree world? And that's the ultimate nuclear argument for, for how Bitcoin mining actually makes sense, because it provides already the elements of where from this work onwards, where do we need to engage, or where does it make sense to engage with policymakers to actually build on their language with their models, rerunning it, but with Bitcoin mining and Bitcoin in the various dimensions as the X factor in the equation. And that would provide a really, really cool civilization pathway, if you want, because we would essentially work in a zero. Uh, in a, Everybody in, wins. In a, exactly. We, we start in an SSP3 world. We have Bitcoin as the X factor in the middle. We, whether you appreciate it or not, but it's good to be at 1.5 degrees. Let's just accept that as common sense. And economically, we would reinstall what we would call um, an SSP1 world. Because what is this all about? It's all about um, low time preference, um, free markets. We're all in for that. And that's what the, and, 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 corporate, and cooperative worlds, that's exactly what Bitcoin provides. Bitcoin is 
the SSP1 world. We are living now in a world which is essentially, it's a need creation economy, while what we actually need is a need coverage economy. Yeah. So we're just, we're, we're having so much economic output that we Bitcoiners would agree we don't need. We're all against frivolous spending, stupid purchases. You know, your Bitcoin is valuable, so you only want to exchange it for the best goods possible. So Bitcoiners, uh, whether they agree or not, share a lot with the left that thinks in sufficiency economics, for instance, or degrowth economics. Bitcoin is the path. It caters to both, I would even call it religions at that point. You know? And so there's a very pragmatic way forward, which, which, which builds on realities where we are right now, engages with um, policymakers and legacy institutions where necessary and appropriate, builds a pathway forward where we say this is the, now the legitimacy of why we really want to use that energy and how we want to use it to actually end up in a better world because what we want is a Bitcoin standard. Brilliant. Okay. So anyone listening, what would you encourage them to do? I would focus on those who are interested in supporting this or being part of this. What, what, what is the action now? I think there are two groups. If you are, the, my plea would be, let's not get hung up on who's right. This is not how, this is a net negative for all of us. Agreed. We want a cooperative world. Humans are inherently in co uh, cooperative. We, we, we do better when we collaborate and when we cooperate. This is, this, is, this is the first one. It makes, life gets easier if you start to understand the other side a little better. Um, I've spent my professional life usually always between camps. So before 2017, 2018, when Greta Thunberg essentially started this climate movement, which changed everything, by the way, apolitical, but which changed everything in terms of how the world related to the climate issue, I had to explain what I'm doing. So I was a sort of a <laughs> misfit in, in, in the rest of the world. Then I became a Bitcoiner. So anyways, we're weirdos. And now you become a Bitcoiner in the climate space. This is like as weird as it gets. Mm -hmm. But it, you fucking freak. <laughs> <laughs> I'm used to that. I hear that. I love I it. I hear man. that often. Honestly. So Keep for going. those who are interested, um, reach out to me. I would love to, 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 to bundle that energy. Um, I think Bitcoin, and I know many would, will, I'm conscious that many will disagree. Bitcoin needs a voice also in Europe, and it doesn't. And that's that, in, that's it, inherently that is, so the, that is inherently the case. We do not Bitcoin doesn't have a, and it's what makes it fucking brilliant. You know, it doesn't have a leader, it doesn't have a face, and that makes it very strong. But like the Bitcoin um, Policy Institute in the U.S., there are moments when it's good to provide an opinion and a voice and a position to a conversation. Yeah, and I'm not in the camp of saying, well, Bitcoin doesn't care. Yes, Bitcoin doesn't care, but we can still catalyze a couple of things if we just bring this together. I mean, just take the, the whole methane conversation. This is so fucking brilliant. What, how many brains now started to work on this? Engineers, philosophers, um, uh, VCs, um, modelers. I mean, this is such brilliant brains and it would be a shame if all of them would act in isolation and not sort of bundle this like the death star in a positive way 
and bring this to a positive explosion. This is so on my my mind, Danny's mind. We're talking about this a lot. We we need the equivalent of a Bitcoin policy institute in Europe. Let's say people are focused on education and lobbying and having those conversations with policymakers to not inhibit what we're trying to do, but also. Um, be more proactive and I know some people are like oh, don't, don't work with regulators sometimes I think you have to like the enemy of my enemy or whatever um, but um, I, I think we do to the point where I'm even thinking of having that conversation with the policy institute and saying look we will pay for mm -hmm. somebody but can they work under you in Europe like can, mm -hmm. can they work within your structure but can they be doing the work in Europe I think it's desperately needed mm -hmm. Danny's been poking me a lot on this mm -hmm. I think Neil needs to head it up really I think he'd be really good at it that's a fucking bold statement i think you'd be very very good at it i think you're right his time's already paid exactly and if he had to spend more time on that we would cope without him on this and that's interesting i'm gonna think about that but i think it's i think that's fucking brilliant well done okay i i, I think we need that okay thank you really appreciate having you on harry um uh, how do people find you find your work get in contact well i'm i'm more the reader on twitter but um, I'll try to to get some of these ideas out uh -huh. more regularly. I think it's important. I learn from them, and I think it's um, I learn from sh from people sharing with me. So I think it's also time to to give back. So I'm trying to do better. You find me at, at Harald Rauter. It's my full name. You might have to spell that one. Yes, H A R A L D R A U. T E R. I think you might increase your follow account a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> guess, guess the numbers. But you can also write me you can also write me an email that's probably the easiest at that point, and that is Harold at Bitcoinfirst.org. Okay, so we will put that all in the show notes. Uh, we should do a follow-up to this next time we do a European sprint. I definitely want to cover the fourth turning from a thermodynamic cybernetic perspective. <laughs> we should you know who we should try and bring in from that? Mark. No. Brandon? Yes. Mm. Yeah. Try and bring Brandon and get awesome. the two of you around the table. Go and watch a football <laughs> match. Uh, I'm going to take you to dinner tonight and then we're going to go watch football tomorrow. Appreciate you, man. This was brilliant. Take Thank care. you very much. Anything we can do to help, stay in touch. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you for listening to What Bitcoin Did. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Harold. It's been fantastic to hear again how important Bitcoin is in tackling climate change and how new voices in the community are working to educate decision makers. Now, please reach out to Harold if you have any ideas, if you want to spread the message, particularly within Europe. And if you want to get in touch with me, if you've got any questions, it's hello at whatbitcoindid.com. I do try and reply to every email. I'm out in Texas, going to be here for a few days, and heading out to Miami to make a few shows. Going to be organizing a meetup to watch one of the Bedford games, so keep an eye out on my Twitter. All right, have a great week, and I will see you all soon.